0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 28, Exodus chapters 28 and 29. Well, we ended way through chapter 28 last week, and we were just getting into the garb of the Levite priests. Now, pardon me for being a little repetitive, but what we need to remember is that it was the tribe of Levi, or as we like to say as Gentiles at least, Levi, right, um, that was set apart as the priestly tribe for God. Now, even though we use the general designation of the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe, that doesn't mean that all the Levites were priests. While all of the members of the tribe of Levi, or Levi, were to be involved in service to the tabernacle in some form or another, and then, of course, later the temple, only some of the Levites were to be actual priests, meaning those who officiated at these sacrificial rituals, with the remainder of them being equivalent to the blue-collar workers, okay, who, who did the various tasks needed around the tabernacle-like cleanup and, frankly, guard duty. All right, so while we tend to bandy about the term Levite priests, in fact only a few Levites ever became priests and that was determined solely by which of the several clans within the tribe of Levi that they were born into. The high priest was supposed to come only from the descendants of Aaron and then only from the line descended from Aaron's son Eleazar. That said, that's not what always, act, what actually happened. Now, let's move on to the high priest whose clothing was quite distinct from the other priests and we'll find all that information in Exodus chapter 28. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. You are to summon your brother Aharon and his sons to come from among the people of Israel to you so that they can serve me as Kohanim, priests. Aaron and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You are to make for your brother Aharon garments set apart for serving God, expressing dignity and splendor. Speak to all the craftsmen to whom I have given the spirit of wisdom and have them make Aaron's garments to set him apart from me so that he can serve me in the office of priest. The garments they are to make are these, a breastplate, a ritual vest, a robe, a checkered tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that he can serve me in the office of priest. They are to use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. They are to make the ritual vest of gold, of purple, uh, a blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely woven linens crafted by a skilled artisan. Attached to its front and back edges are to be two shoulder pieces that can be fastened together. Its decorated belt is to be made of the same workmanship and materials, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely woven linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, six remaining names on the other in the order of their birth. An engraver should engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones as he would engrave a seal. Mount the stones in gold settings and put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the vest as stones calling to mind the sons of Israel. Aaron's to carry their names before Adonai on his two shoulders as a reminder. Make gold squares. And two chains of pure gold, twisted-like cords, attach the cord-like chains to the squares. Make a breastplate for judging. Have it crafted by a skilled artisan. Make it like the work of the ritual vest. Make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely woven linen. When folded double, it's to be square, a hand span by a hand span, put in settings of stones, four rows of stones. The first row is to be a carnelian, a topaz, and an emerald. The second row, a green feldspar, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, an orange zircon, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They're to be mounted in their gold settings. The stones will correspond to the names of the twelve sons of Israel, They're to be engraved with their names as a seal would be engraved to represent the twelve tribes. On the breastplate, make two gold chains, twisted like cords. Also for the breastplate, two gold rings. Put the gold rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Put the two twisted chains uh, in the two rings at the two ends of the breastplate. Attach the other two ends of the twisted chains to the front of the shoulder pieces on the ritual vest. Make two gold rings and put them on the two ends of the breastplate at its edge on the side facing in towards the vest. Also make two gold rings and attach them low on the front part of the vest's shoulder pieces near the joint above the vest's decorated belt. Then bind the breastplate by its rings to the rings of the vest with a blue cord so that it can be on the vest's decorated belt and so that the breastplate won't swing loose from the vest. Aaron will carry the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate for judging over his heart when he enters the holy place as a continual reminder before Adonai. uh, You are to put the Urim and the Tumim in the breastplate for judging. They will be over Aaron's heart when he goes into the presence of Adonai. Thus, Aaron will always have the means for making decisions for the people of Israel over his heart when he's in the presence of Adonai. You are to make the robe for the ritual vest entirely of blue. It's to have an opening for the head in the middle. Around the opening it is to be a border woven like the neck of a coat of mail so that it won't tear. On its bottom hem, make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet and put them all the way around with gold bells between them all the way around. Gold bell, pomegranate, gold bell, pomegranate, all the way around the hem of the robe. Aaron is to wear it when he ministers and its sound will be heard whenever he enters the holy place before Adonai and when he leaves, so that he won't die. You are to make an ornament of pure gold and engrave, engrave on it as a seal, set apart for Adonai. Fasten it to the turban with a blue cord on the front of the turban over Aaron's forehead, because Aaron bears the guilt for any errors committed by the people of Israel in consecrating their holy gifts. This ornament is always to be on his forehead, so that the gifts of I will be accepted by him. You're to weave the checkered tunic of fine linen, make a turban of fine linen, make a belt, the work of a weaver in colors. Likewise, for Aaron's sons make tunics, sashes, headgear, expressing dignity and splendor with them. Clothe your brother Aaron and his sons, then anoint them, inaugurate them, consecrate them, so that they will be able to serve me in the office of calling. Also make for them linen shorts reaching from waist to thigh to cover their bare flesh. Aaron and his sons are to wear them when they go into the tent of meeting and when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they won't incur guilt and die. This is to be a perpetual regulation both for him and for his descendants." Well working from the inside out, the high priest just as the lower priest was to wear breeches, All right. uh, underwear very akin to long johns. All right. uh, usually, this garment went from waist to knees. All right. Now, white in color, its purpose was twofold, All right. to maintain a high degree of modesty uh, to begin with, because many of the pagan religions of that day had their priests serve their gods naked. All right and Or they wore something extremely sensual and erotic. Right. Second, it served the same practical sanitary purposes as, the, as our modern-day underwear does. Right. The priest's outer garments could not be soiled by conditions of the flesh, normal or abnormal. If they were, they had to be carefully washed. All right. And that was quite a chore back then. Now, over the breeches was a, 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 a white tunic. Right. usually mistakenly called a coat in the Bible. Uh, according to Josephus, the tunic was fairly tight-fitting, and it went all the way from the neck down to the feet. Right. And, and like the breeches, it was made of white linen, and generally the only part of the tunic that could be seen was three or four inches of it, right around the ankle area below the hem of the blue garment. Okay. Now, over the tunic was now this blue garment. All right, it, it, it was required to be seamless, so it just had a slit for the priest's head, all right, to fit through, and two more slits on the sides for his arms. And around the bar, bottom of the garment, the hem, um, were blue, purple, and red pomegranates. Um. Which alternated with little metal bells, all of the, all of them made out of gold. Now this blue robe went from his neck to just halfway between his knees and his ankles. Now next the high priest would don his ephod. Alright. It is a it was a two-piece garment, this ephod, okay? And part of it covering his chest, that's what you're I'm outlining here, this gold piece. Uh, And then it went over to his back about the same length. Now, sometimes the ephod gets confused with the breastplate. This is because at times both were called ephod. And I suppose it's because they all kind of work together. Actually, the ephod was what the breastplate was attached to. It was embroidered with blue and purple and red linen yarns. The front and the back were separate pieces held together by a braided strap that went over the shoulder. Now, two onyx stones were attached to the braided shoulder straps. One up here, one on the other side, and each was engraved with names of six of the tribes of Israel. Now, over and attached to the ephod was the breastplate. Also called the breastplate of judgment. Now, this is a very interesting accessory. It was square. It had a pouch in it. And twelve precious stones of varying kinds were on it. Each engraved with the name of one of the Israelite tribes. Inside this pouch were two very mysterious stones called the Urim and the Tumim. The high priest also wore a turban or sometimes it's called a mitre. And on the turban around his forehead was a golden plate with the words Holiness to Yehovah" inscribed on it. Well, now that we've taken a quick look at the high priest's Special uniform. Let's back up and talk about some special aspects of these various articles of clothing. The ephod is quite interesting as it contains the names of all the tribes of Israel and it is worn over the high priest's heart. Let me remind you right here that even though uh, for us, when we think of something over the heart, we start thinking of Oh, soul and emotion and all that sort of thing. That's not what they were thinking. They did not understand that the brain was the seat of intellect. For them, the heart was the, was the equivalent of what today we think of the brain. So this is why you'll see s- several spots in the Bible that will talk about all the thoughts of your heart. Kind of a strange sounding thing until you realize that for them the heart was the equivalent of today's mind or brain okay now the two large shoulder stones you just barely see them in these pictures indicated that Israel is really two groups later they would be called houses alright the two houses of Israel alright so by means of all the different stones attached to the ephod and the breastplate and so on, we actually see this threefold nature of Israel symbolized. You see all Israel, you see the two houses of Israel, and we see the 12 individual tribes of Israel. Now, part of the ephod was a pouch called the Hoshan, H-O-S-H-E-N, all right, that contained the two stones that were used in a, in a decision-making process. These two stones called the Urim and the Tumim. Now the exact way these stones were used is a mystery. However, there are some characteristics about them that we can know. For instance, they were contained in and considered part of the total ephod, All right, that is in the ephod and the breastplate. The breastplate was also called the breastplate of justice or judgment or in Hebrew Hoshin Ha Mishpat. Right, I hope you'll recall our lesson not long ago about the words judgment and justice which in Hebrew is Mishpat. All right. The first thing to keep in mind is that we're not to take the use of the word judgment, at least here, as generally meaning wrath or punishment. Mishpat does not mean punishment. We of the church have generally been taught to think of the biblical use of the word judgment as meaning a negative consequence for something mankind has done wrong, a divine punishment. In other words, we should not think of the breastplate of judgment as though it means the breastplate of wrath or something like that. Now, mishpat most literally means justice. Um, So breastplate of justice or even breastplate of God's will is probably actually a better rendering of those Hebrew words according to our 21st century Western way of thinking. Right. And with all the tribes of Israel represented on this breastplate, the idea is that God is going to deal with Israel according to his system of justice. Now, it's the Urim and Tumim, one of the most marvelous aspects of these two objects, is hidden from us if we don't understand Hebrew. Urim means light. Right? And Tumim means perfection or fulfillment. Right. Technically, because these two words are plurals, it is lights and fulfillments or perfections. Right. Light and perfection are perhaps the two most recognizable qualities of God Almighty. But it goes further. One of the titles given to Jehovah in the New Testament, one we're all kind of familiar with, is the Alpha and the Omega. Right. The beginning and the end. This comes from the idea. That in the Greek alphabet, the alpha is the first letter, and the omega is the last. In English, it's like saying A to Z. But this alpha and omega concept was hardly a New Testament revelation. Because here in Exodus, the first letter of the word urim, in the Hebrew way of spelling, is the aleph. Okay, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the first letter of the word Tumim in the Hebrew is the Tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Aleph or Aleph is the Hebrew equivalent to Alpha, the Tav equivalent to Omega, Omega, Alpha, Omega, Aleph, Tav, Urim, Tumim. Right? So the Urim and Tumim represent part of God's very nature, the first and the last. Now, the Urim and the Tumim were apparently used in a decision-making process whereby there was a choice from among two options that needed to be made. One or the other, yes or no, that sort of thing. Now, we only really read of three or four places in the Old Testament where the Urim and Tumim are specifically even mentioned as being used for decision-making. However, we also get a couple more references that seem to indicate that the use of these two stones, although they're not mentioned by name because the biblical passages say that a decision was arrived at by means of the ephod. When it says that, it's speaking of the Urim and tumi, okay, which included that breastplate. but But there's no other known means of making a decision with the use of the ephod than with the Urim and thumim. So if it says by use of the ephod, Referring to those two rocks. The point is that the breastplate carries enormous prophetic symbolism that those Hebrews led by Moses could probably only barely understand, if at all. And it was that God's nature of light and perfection is the very essence of his justice system. And that God's justice system is applied both to Israel and will be brought to mankind through Israel. Now if you recall our lesson on the word Mishpat, you'll also recall that I told you that as God introduces his justice system in Exodus 21, he literally calls it his Mishpat. And this system of justice was devised to bring about redemption and salvation. We have a commonly used church word for this process. We call it the gospel. We we the breastplate could be characterized quite correctly as the breastplate of the gospel because it incorporates the concepts of God's justice, his light and perfection and of course as Israel, of Israel as the nation through whom God was going to justify the whole of mankind. Now of course it turns out the nation of Israel, of Israel also produce a very special Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the cornerstone of God's justice. Another interesting item that the high priest wore was this headplate, this strip of gold, this gold band that was held around his forehead with a uh, a thread. Right. And this band went just above his brow line and on it it read Kodesh Yehoveh which means holiness to Yehoveh or set apart for Yehoveh. You see the high priest was Israel's representative before God. We see partly in those two stones that have all of the tribes names that upon the high priest's shoulders Rested either the acceptance or rejection of all Israel by God. What a responsibility. Now, as we'll shortly see in the consecration and dedication ceremony of Aaron and the other priests, the concept of substitution in God's justice system is made quite clear and is demonstrated in the high priest. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he carries upon him all the sins of Israel when he approaches God and makes atonement. The garments worn by the high priest speak of him as a substitute for all Israel. Although, interestingly, on Yom Kippur he wears only a simple white linen outfit. When he goes into the Holy of Holies instead of his normal, resplendent clothing with that blue robe. And the sacrificial animal whose blood the high priest, the Kohen Hagadol, carries and will sprinkle on the mercy seat, bears the substitute death that is due man for our sins. This is why the New Testament speaks of Jesus, Yeshua, as our high priest. He represents us. He carries the burden of our sins before the Father. He is the substitute for all who will believe. He also bears the substitute death for us. Further, it's his blood that was shed and through which atonement was achieved. So, Yeshua was unique in that he was both the high priest and the sacrificial animal, so to speak. Now, I want you to please understand that this is an allegory. That I'm speaking to you are some lovely illustration, making the comparison between Christ and the high priest of Israel. The high priest was the shadow of who was to come, Messiah. And the special garments the high priest wore told the story of just how atonement and redemption was going to work. Let's move on now and read a little more about that in Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. Here's what you are to do to consecrate them from ministry to me in the office of Kohen. Take one young bull and two rams without defect, also matzah, matzah cakes mixed with olive oil and matzah wafers spread with oil all made from fine wheat flour, and put them together in a basket and present them in a basket along with a bull and two rams. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic, the robe for the ritual vest, the vest itself, and the breastplate. Fasten the vest on him with its belt. Put the turban on his head and attach the holy ornament to the turban. Then take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons, put tunics on them, wrap sashes around them, Aaron and his sons, and put the headgear on their heads. The office of priest is to be theirs by a permanent regulation. Thus you will consecrate Aaron and his sons. Bring the young bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons are to lay hands on the bull's head. And you're to slaughter the bull in the presence of Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now take some of the bull's blood, put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Take all the fat that covers the inner organs, the covering over the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and offer them up in smoke on the altar. But the bull's flesh, the skin, the dung, you're to destroy by fire, Outside the camp, it is a sin offering. Now take one of the rams, Aaron and his sons are to lay hands on the ram's head. You are to slaughter the ram. Take its blood, splash it on all sides of the altar. Quarter the ram. Wash the inner organs and the lower parts of the legs and put them with the quarters and the head. Then offer up the whole ram and smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering for Adonai, a pleasing aroma an offering made to Adonai by fire. Take the other ram, Aaron and his sons that are to lay their hands on the ram's head in here to slaughter the ram. Take some of its blood, put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the lobes of his sons' right ears, on the thumbs of their hands, on the big toes of their right feet. Take the rest of the blood and splash it on all sides of the altar. Then take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his clothing and on his sons and on the clothing of his sons with him so that he and his clothing will be consecrated and with him his sons and his sons clothing. Also now take the fat from the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the inner organs, the two kidneys, the fat covering them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration along with one loaf of bread, one cake of oiled bread, and one wafer from the basket of matzah, which is before Adonai, and put it all in the hands of Aaron and his sons. They're to wave them as a wave offering in the presence of Adonai. Then take them back and burn them up in smoke on the altar on top of the burnt burnt offering to be a pleasing aroma before Adonai. It is an offering made to Adonai by fire. Now take the breast of the ram for Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before Adonai it will be your share consecrate the uh, consecrate the, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of any contribution that has been waved and raised up whether from the ram or from anything else meant for Aaron and his sons this will belong to Aaron and his sons as their share perpetually due from the people of Israel it will be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings contribution to Adonai. The holy garments of Aaron will be used by his sons after him. They will be anointed and consecrated in them. The son who becomes priest in his place, who comes into the tent of meeting to serve in the holy place, is to wear them for seven days. Take the ram of consecration and boil its meat in a holy place. Aaron and his sons will eat the ram's meat and the bread in the basket at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They are to eat the things with which atonement was made for them, to inaugurate and consecrate them. No one else may eat this food because it's holy. If any of the meat for the consecration or any of the bread remains until morning, burn it up. It's not to be eaten. It's holy. It's holy. Carry out all these orders I have given you concerning Aaron and his sons. You are to spend seven days consecrating them. Each day, offer a young bull as a sin offering besides the other offerings of atonement. Offer the sin offering on the altar as your atonement for it, then anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you will make atonement on the altar and consecrate it. Thus the altar will be especially holy. And whatever touches the altar will become holy. Now this is what you're to offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, regularly, every day. The one lamb you're to offer in the morning, the other lamb at dusk. With the one lamb, offer two quarts of finely ground flour mixed with one quart of oil from pressed olives. Along with one quart of wine as a drink offering. The other lamb you're to offer at dusk. Do it do it as with the morning grain and drink offerings. It will be a pleasing aroma before Adonai an offering made to Adonai by fire. Throughout all your generations, this is to be the regular burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting before Adonai. This is where I will meet with you to speak with you. There I will meet with the people of Israel and the place will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Likewise, I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me in the office of priest. Then I will live with the people of Israel and be their God. They will know that I am Adonai, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt in order to live with them. I am Adonai, their God. Allow me to mention something that I said a while back. What we are witness to in these last few chapters of Exodus is not of Jehovah through Moses, altering the principles of the religion of the Hebrews to make them different from the principles he taught to Adam and Eve. Nor is he changing the Hebrew priesthood from one kind or purpose to another kind. Up to this moment in history, right here, Israel did not have a priesthood and its religion by now consisted mostly of what they had learned from and was in line with the Egyptians religious system. Rather what God is doing is continuing this process of separating Israel step by step from the ways of the corrupt world and in their particular case that world was Egypt and establishing them as a completely set apart people with a completely different religion and as a nation unto themselves. And while they were indeed in process of becoming a holy, unique nation, their purpose as a nation was being established. And that purpose was to serve God Almighty. And that service would be taught and focused by means of this powerful priesthood that just at this moment we witness coming into being with Aaron at its head, it's high priest, it's Kohen HaGadol. Now some of the rituals that we see here in chapter 29 are actually only one-time happenings. Because what is being described here is the ceremony to consecrate the establishment of the priesthood. The consecration ceremony that takes up the bulk of this chapter is like the ribbon-cutting ceremony for a new ship or a highway okay. by design it's really only supposed to happen once however there are also some ongoing rituals particularly towards the end of the chapter that we read about um, that are being established Um, and even if they're not done precisely the same way as the consecration ceremony um, they're carried out in a similar manner right, in a later time. Now, the first thing to know is that the consecration of Aaron and his priests was to be public. It wasn't to be a secret ceremony. Secrecy in God's economy is generally not compatible with light and truth. The people were able to observe and they had explained to them what was going on and who was involved. The second thing to know is that what we're reading about in these chapters is only what God is instructing Moses to do. Moses, at this moment, is still up on the summit of Mount Sinai. So the narrative we've been reading since chapter 24 amounts to God being quoted as he's instructing Moses. And in a few more chapters, and after the coming golden calf incident, then all these instructions will actually be put into place so that they can be carried out. Well, after God gave Moses a short list in verses 1 through 3 of animals and foods that were to be sacrificed as part of this coming consecration ceremony, Moses is instructed to bring Aaron and his sons into the outer court of the tabernacle in front of, but not inside, that tent sanctuary. And the first thing Moses is instructed to do is to wash Aaron and his sons with water. Now, sacrificing we've seen occurring since Adam and Eve. But this is the beginning of ritual washing with water that is going to be so integral to the Levitical system and the central feature of Israel's new way of life. So let's not rush by this. There's some important teaching buried here that resurfaces later. Now Moses is the highest leader of Israel and therefore in God's eyes of mankind, really, was instructed by Jehovah to humble himself by washing the priests. Now understand, the washing was of their feet and hands. This was before there was a mikvah, a ritual bath. Right? This was a public washing. Trust me, they didn't strip people naked and dunk them in front of crowds of people. Right? This isn't what was being done here. It was standard for priests and it came out of this ceremony that before they went on duty, they washed their hands and their feet. This is what Moses was washing, their feet and their hands. Now, the priests were considered to be lower in rank than Moses. Even Aaron was lower in rank than Moses and had less authority. Yet here was this most powerful man, the only man that ever talked with God face to face, reduced to performing a task that in those days usually only women or servants did, washing others. Now, this must have been quite a shocking sight to all those Hebrews who lived in a world where the social class you belonged to was everything. The idea that your supreme ruler, Moses, would stoop down and wash a lesser person's feet was unthinkable. Now, was the idea here all about the humbling of Moses? Was this the point of having Moses wash the priests? No, it wasn't. The idea was all about the priests being prepared and consecrated for service to Jehovah. But first, they had to be clean in God's eyes. And the method God has chosen to accomplish this includes ritual washing. Yet there indeed was significance in Moses doing the washing, for it demonstrated that cleansing of people could only come from on high as a merciful and loving act. Now, follow me here. Hundreds of years later, the Bible is going to show us a replay of this very incident about Moses washing the priests. But this time it's going to be in the New Testament in the Gospel of John where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Yeshua, the highest leader on earth from heaven's standpoint, Jesus the Master, Yeshua, God incarnate, humbles himself as a servant. But why is he doing this? What is the significance of this act? In my opinion, this is the consecration ceremony for the new spiritual priesthood that Jesus' advent was bringing in. Just as it was Moses the mediator who acted on God's behalf to establish the earthly, physical, fleshly priesthood, so Yeshua the Mediator established the spiritual, heavenly priesthood built on faith in him. Now listen to one, just one of many New Testament passages that I believe confirms without doubt my conclusion on this matter. Listen to 1 Peter 2. Therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men but choice and precious on the sight of God, you also also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now first, because of too much false teaching running amok uh, in the Hebrew Roots Movement, notice that believers have not become the new and replacement physical and earthly priesthood. That is, replacing earthly-wise, physical-wise, the Hebrew Levites. Rather, it is the spiritual element that's being addressed. It is from the spiritual point of view, as the verse says, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Second, remember... All who follow Christ, all of Messiah's disciples, are as priests. We in this room, Jew and Gentile, who have turned the lordship of our lives over to Yeshua, are his priests, or as the Bible calls us, a kingdom of priests or a holy house of priests. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the startled and bewildered disciples of Jesus could not have made that connection between what Yeshua was doing to them by washing their feet and what Moses did 1,300 years earlier by washing Aaron and his sons. The first priests of the earthly priesthood, the very first priests of the kingdom of God, spiritual priesthood. Moses in consecrating Aaron and his sons by washing them with water was a shadow and type of what Jesus was going to do. And naturally, Jesus performed his consecration in the exact same way Moses did in his role as mediator performing the ritual washing. So what Yeshua HaMashiach did on that day was far more powerful and had a lot higher meaning than simply showing by his example that the master must also be a meek and humble servant to his people, as is usually the limited teaching we get about that event. You know, the bottom line here is that if we don't know and understand the Torah and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, the true and profound symbolism of Yeshua washing the feet of his disciples goes right over our heads. Okay. It's ironic as well that within the same paragraph in Peter that says that Yeshua's disciples form a spiritual peace, priesthood, we also have this interesting instruction. That I've already read to you once, but I'll repeat it. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocr- hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, listen to this, long for the pure milk of the word. That by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Notice that okay? it's by studying the word of God that we grow in respect to salvation. It's not that reading the Word brings us salvation. It's that once saved, the Word becomes our source of growth in our salvation. The only Word that existed in this era was what we call the Old Testament. Oh, I mean, This tragic mistake that we have made so long ago in declaring the Old Testament to be dead and gone and of no value to believers... I mean, Peter clearly states to Jesus and Paul and John and others that the Old Testament scripture is what they valued as truth and the place where to go and to continue to go in order to find truth, to grow our faith and our understanding. This is most certainly, by the way, not to imply that the New Testament is defective or something less. Rather, it is to say that the Old Testament is valid and important. And with the return of Israel as a nation of Jews, rather prophetic milestone, the Old Testament now we see re-emerging. The scripture of critical importance concerning our day and age. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this ceremony in Exodus 29 with Moses washing the priests was a kind of a one-time deal. Okay. From here on, neither Moses nor anyone else washed the priests. Rather, each individual was charged with the ritual washing of himself. Now the principle God was demonstrating by means of his establishment of ritual washing was regeneration. That is the principle that we must be made anew, we must be regenerated in order to be cleansed from sin before God. The Hebrews had to do these washings countless times through the centuries because each ritual washing had an effect which in essence was temporary in nature until the next time they needed it. The ritual washing was required for a long list of reasons which we're going to cover in a few weeks. Now after being washed Aaron and his sons are to put on these special priest garments that God had instructed to be made for them. Their old clothing represents who they were. Their new clothing represents who they are now before God. Then the priests were anointed by having this special anointing oil that was just loaded up with expensive spices. This oil-based liquid poured on them. And by the way, we'll find out later in Leviticus and even later still in the Talmud that there was a certain manner in which this anointing was to be done. The oil had to be poured over their heads in sufficient uh, quantity that it not only ran down their faces and dripped off their beards, it had to flow all the way down to the hem of their garments. This was a messy operation. But not only that, there was a specific way it had to be poured. It had to be poured from right to left and then back to front kind of interesting isn't it this anointing of holy oil was symbolic and prophetic of Pentecost when the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy Spirit could anoint man all this made possible by Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross now, as we keep moving through all of these ritual processes in Exodus and Leviticus, I want you to take notice of them. how the physical act that we find in the Old Testament is always prophetic and symbolic of the spiritual reality that will be shown to us in the New Testament. That is, the Old Testament rituals were teachings, they were demonstrations, copies and shadows of what the future spiritual spiritual reality would be. But let's be be very clear about these. They were also real and they were efficacious. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They weren't pretend. Now, beginning in verse 10, a whole series of sacrifices is called for with Moses officiating. Moses officiates because... Until the consecration ceremony is completed, there's no official priesthood to do it. So Moses acts in God's stead. Now recall back in chapter 24 when the ritual of sealing the covenant of Moses was happening, that God ordered Moses to build a stone altar and to sacrifice animals upon it. But recall, it was not priests that performed those sacrifices because there weren't any priests. Rather, it said there was some young men selected. Actually, these were the household's firstborn males right, who officiated the sacrificing. It says that a bullock, also called an ox, also at times called a bull, was to be brought into the outer court area of the tabernacle. This is the outer court here. okay? Um, near the tent of meeting, which is back here, Um, And, of course, the sacred tent was right next to the brazen altar. Now, Israel now receives this visual demonstration of the meaning of the principle of substitution. Because the priests all lay their hands on the head of the bull. Now this represents a transference of the priest's sin onto the bull. The bull then becomes their substitute. The bull now bears the sin that belonged to the priests. So now the bull is killed, skinned, cut up into pieces. Some of the bull's blood is captured in a, in a ceremonial bronze pail, and the blood is splashed onto the bottom of the altar, and some is spread onto the horns of the altar. The horns are these are, are, are one at each corner of the altar. Normally, the bull would have been tied to one of the altar's horns, but not in the consecration ceremony. Because part of what's happening here was not only the consecration of the priests, but also the consecration of the tabernacle and its utensils and even the brazen altar itself. Okay? Until the bull was killed and its blood spilled and then used to cleanse the altar, the altar wasn't even fit for use. But once that was accomplished, then the meat of the sacrificed animal could be burnt up on the altar. Now notice that though the parts of the bull that were placed on the altar didn't include the animal's flesh, the fat that covered the inner organs was used. The entire rest of the animal, including the meat and the bones and the hide, was taken outside the encampment of Israel, not just outside the tabernacle, but outside this vast encampment of Israelites. And out there, it was burned and offered up in what was called a sin offering. Now, in the Bible, the fat is considered the most valuable part of the animal. So only the most valuable was offered to Yehovah on the brazen altar in this special sacrifice, this sacrifice of consecration. Now, the rest of the animal was, was offered up not on the brazen altar, not even within the camp of Israel. In fact, I believe that this very first sacrifice of a bull in the tabernacle was a model for another very special sacrifice that would use a red heifer which is going to come later. I mention this because those of you who like prophecy know that the sacrifice of the red heifer is going to be a very critical requirement for the dedication, the consecration, of a new temple that will be built in Jerusalem one day, I don't think very long from now at all. I think one morning in the very near future we're going to wake up to hear the news. I really do. Now, you see, we must take notice of a most unusual and mysterious feature of this inaugural sacrifice of this bull, and then later of the red heifer. Because in both cases, the sacrifice isn't offered in a holy place. It's not even offered in a ritually clean place. What an odd thing. But rather, it's offered up in an unclean place, totally outside the camp of Israel. A good rule of thumb to understand Old Testament Bible lingo is that outside the camp refers to any area that is considered ritually impure. All the normal and regular sacrifices that Israel had to perform were to occur only at the brazen altar, which of course was inside the camp and naturally, ritually pu- uh, pure. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. Now next beginning in verse 15 we have a, another bird offering made only this time it uses a ram a male sheep. Once again Aaron and his sons lay hands on that animal. This identifying with the ram as their representative, their substitute. The ram is slain, its bloods collected, it's cut up into quarters There is a ritual washing of the inner organs. And now the ram can be burnt on the brazen altar because the previous sacrifice, that bull, is what consecrated the altar. So now, at that point, it can start to be used for its intended purpose. Now the second ram is sacrificed following the same basic procedure as with the first. But this time, some of the ram's blood is dabbed onto the right earlobes of Aaron and his sons, then their right thumbs and their right big toes. Remember what we learned about the directions right and left. Right is always the more important, more holy side or direction, just as east is always the most important direction of the four map, compass directions. Then some of the ram's blood is sprinkled onto the priests and onto their clothing. Some of the the fat of this ram, along with the matzah, the unleavened bread, is given to the priests and they offer it as a wave offering. Literally, this means they hold it up above their shoulders and their heads and they move it back and forth in a waving motion. Then they take the wave offering and they put it on the brazen altar, at least a portion of it. Now, the breast of the ram is set aside for Moses. After Moses offers it as a wave offering, he can then use it as his own food. Aaron and his sons were then given the remaining portion of the ram. It says they boiled it and they sat at the entrance to the sanctuary tent and ate it right in the doorway, it says. Okay. Now, most elements of this consecration ceremony were to be repeated for seven consecutive days. Why seven days? Because seven is the number of completion. This was established going back to creation itself. In fact, there's a much intended connection between the creation story and the establishment of Israel, and we're going to see several more common elements of that connection appear as we move along. Now, beginning in verse 38 is a fairly general outline um, or standard of everyday sacrifices. And, And this is going to be much expanded in Leviticus, so we'll... Look at every type of offering and its significance during our study of Leviticus. And by the way, don't think that that study is going to be trivial or boring. If you want to understand the nature of sin and sacrifice and atonement, Leviticus is where you're going to find it. Okay. Now this chapter, this particular chapter of Exodus ends with God reminding Israel yet again of who he is and who they are and that with the completed consecration now of the tabernacle and the priesthood God can now do the thing he desires so much to do with his people, dwell with them. Over and over we see this sort of statement in the Torah and for very good reason. At this moment these three million Hebrews were still far more Egyptian in their thinking than they were Israelite. Okay, The radical new ways God was showing them was gonna take time and repetition and visual demonstrations and God's firm hand of discipline upon them for them to ever grasp it. Matter of fact, it was gonna take the better part of 40 years for Israel to change significantly enough for God to even allow them to set foot onto the promised land of Canaan. All right, we'll continue on next week.